All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chair around you. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. All right, starting at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, this sermon series is called Invitation to More, and uh, a very reasonable uh, question to ask is more what? And so I want to be clear up front um, what I'm not talking about. I am not going to be talking about how to get more money. I'm not going to be talking about how to get more political power, more influence, uh, more social capital. I'm not going to be talking about how to get more hours in the day. This is not a self-improvement message. What I am going to be talking about is how to get more life and how to get more joy and how to get more strength and power. How to... Here's the thing, you guys. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, Ephesians 1 tells us that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God's not holding out on you. He's not waiting for you to prove yourself. He's not like, well, if you've you've cleaned up this part of your life, well, well, then I might unlock these second-level blessings. And if if you do a little better over here, we might, no, man, they're all yours. If you're a follower of Jesus, every blessing in Christ is already yours, but I guarantee you, you are not experiencing every blessing you have. You have it all, but you have so much more than you're currently experiencing. That's what this this, this message series is about. It's about helping you enter in more deeply to the blessings that Christ has earned for you through his death, burial, and resurrection that that your faith has secured for you in the grace of God because there is so much more. There's more joy. There is more freedom. There is more power. There's more life. C.S. Lewis put it really well in uh, in, in The Weight of Glory. I love this quote. He said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Yes, God invites us to more. We honor God when we respond to that invitation. We honor God when we stop being satisfied with our truncated experience of joy. We honor God when we crave more of his presence, more of his power, more of his joy, more of the freedom that comes in Christ. We honor God because we honor the invitation. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis is really onto something, I think, in that, in that part about we cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. 
right? We're so used to making our little mud pies, our small little worlds that are, that are defined and safe. It's, it's what we've experienced. It's what we're used to. And, and we can't really esteem and understand what's actually being offered to us, right? Some of you have never been to the ocean, right? And so the idea of a, a holiday at the ocean is, I don't know, you don't even know what it's like. In fact, especially right now, some of you might find it threatening and uninviting. Um, as somebody who was raised in California and, and loves the ocean, man, I, I absolutely love it. Here's the thing. I think often we don't know what we're being offered. Like, we don't know what we're being offered. I think often we don't respond to God's invitation to more because, because we don't know what it is when it's offered to us, and we don't esteem it for what it is. We just don't see how incredible the promised blessing is. Here's the thing. Our passage is a good example. There's an invitation to more right here in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that I think is pretty easy to overlook. It's right there in verse 1, all right? In verse 1, he says, I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. You're like, Steve, that, that doesn't sound fun. That, that, that doesn't sound appealing. That doesn't sound like an invitation to more. It sounds like an invitation to less, right? Well, here's the thing. For the first readers, the Roman readers, the Roman Christians who read this, it would have been even more striking because in the old world, I guarantee you pretty much everybody in that audience, everybody who heard these words had seen actual animal sacrifices taking place in a, in a temple setting, right? And so it would have been a very vivid image in their mind. And, and what Paul is doing, he's like, hey, you guys, I got an invitation for you. An invitation to more, man, more life, more blessing, more. And you know what? You know how those animals are taken to the temple to be sacrificed? I want you to do that. I want you to present your body to God as a living sacrifice. Now, not in a single heroic act, right, where you can work up enough courage and, and then go die real fast and, yeah, I did it. No, 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 not like that. Mm-mm. I want you, to, I want you to, to, to climb up on the altar to die, and then I want you to stay there. I want you to choose to go there, and I want you to choose to stay there and never come down. I want you to be a living sacrifice. Now, let's be honest, you guys. That probably doesn't sound like an invitation to more. The invitation feels a lot more like an invitation to less. Instead of an invitation to increased blessing, it feels like an invitation to increased suffering, to a diminishing of joy, to a diminishing of freedom, to a diminishing of, of strength. And that's why we look at it and we're like, no thanks. And you know what? That's not unique. We find this pattern throughout the New Testament. 
we see this where, where Jesus gives these incredible invitations and people don't see them for what they are, right? In Mark chapter 10, we have the story of this guy called the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was this guy who just had it together, man. He, he, was, he was religious and moral. He was self-controlled. He was industrious and, 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 and had built capital. He had worked hard and he, was, he, had, he had been able to, to save money. He had the respect of people and like all rich people, he was probably really good looking. And, and so people just liked him. He was one of those guys and, 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 and he heard Jesus speaking, and he was, he was like, man, I like this Jesus guy. I, I need to learn more about this Jesus guy. And so he comes to him, and he's like, good teacher, which is really, really high praise. And, and he comes to him, and he says, what must I do to get eternal life? Now, I want you to realize, he's not just asking, how do I live forever, right? Because if you have a miserable life and you live forever, that's eternal misery, right? He's not talking about a quantity of time. He's talking about a quality of life. He's saying, how do I have the kind of life that is so full of joy, so full of power, so full of freedom, so vibrant that it cannot be defeated and it never ends? How do I have eternal life, not just eternal existence, but eternal life? And Jesus looked at him. The text tells us that he loved him, that he had compassion on him. So he wasn't, he wasn't trolling him. He wasn't punking him. He looked at him and he says, I'll tell you what, sell everything you have and follow me. Jesus was giving him a profound invitation to more. But the rich young ruler perceived it as an invitation to less. He was deeply grieved because he owned much. And so he walked away, grieved in his spirit, sorrowful, confused. Same thing happened to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus shows up in the middle of the night. He is, he is a Pharisee, a highly educated person who, who sits on the council. Like he's, he's highly respected, highly educated. He has, uh, he has earned himself a place in society. And he comes by night to Jesus and pretty much asks the same thing. Kind of like, hey man, what, what is this whole thing about eternal life? And, and Jesus is like, man, if you want it, you have to unlearn everything you've learned. You have to step away from your credentials. All the stuff you think you can boast about, all the stuff you're so proud about, man, you just, you got to walk away from it. Now, Nicodemus ends up responding. Not that night, but, but later. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen who, who had labored diligently in the family business of fishing. They had boats and nets, which were like, oh, that's cool. No, they had to hand make these things. This was, this was capital investment. This is how they made their living. And Jesus walks up to them on the beach and is like, hey, you guys, Leave your nets and follow me because I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they did what nobody around them would understand. They walked away from their nets and they followed Jesus because they heard in that invitation an invitation to more. You guys, we often pass on God's invitation to more because it sounds to us like an invitation to less. We often pass on, on God's invitation to more because it just doesn't sound like an increasing, it sounds like a decreasing. You guys, the problem isn't with the invitation. The problem is with the way we hear it. Paul kind of dra- casually drops this at the end of verse 1, where he's like, he's like um, man, you want to be blessed? You want to be blessed? I urge you, right? I, I plead with you by the mercies of God to, to, to be a, a living sacrifice, right? Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. And, and then at the end, he basically says, because it's, it makes sense, right? Take a look at the end of verse 1, where he says, 
It is your spiritual worship. Now, if you have a different translation, that's the ESV, some translations will translate that as reasonable service. They're the same exact Greek words, but they can be translated both ways. The Greek phrase is logikos latria. Logikos is the word we get our English word logic from. So it's logical, it's reasonable. Um, Latria is the word that we get our uh, same root that we get our English word liturgy from, service or ritual or practice. What he's saying is this is your logical practice of worship. So to put it in Steve language, this is a no-brainer, guys. If you see what I see and understand what I understand, this is a no-brainer. Go offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. It is an invitation to more. It is the pathway to blessing. It just makes sense. Paul's arguing that if you understand what I'm saying, if you see the way I see, this request will not only seem reasonable, it will be overpoweringly attractive because you will see it as an invitation to more blessing, more life, more joy. I hope that over the next few weeks, you'll come to understand the power of of Paul's logic here and and the, the incredible invitation that is in this passage for us. It is incredibly beautiful. It is my hope that it will make sense to you. But for that to happen, we're gonna need a radical shift in the way we see, in the way we perceive life. And in fact, Paul says that in in verse 2, right? In verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Do not be conformed. What Paul is saying is that there is a default mode to the human heart that is universal to all of us. You guys know what I know, mean by default mode, right? Like if your computer goes all haywire, you press some buttons and you do some special things. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I do know that what ends up happening is you go back to default mode. It's like the starting point, right? It's where everything else is built on the default mode, but the default mode is always in there and you can always go back to it, right? There is a commonality to the human experience. There's a commonality to the human heart that is the default mode, something we all share in common. You may have different pursuits than me. You have made different passions than me, different personality, different enjoyments. But at the heart of it, when you, when you, really, when you get all that stuff, you pare that all away, you get down to the, to the heart motivations, the root of it, there's a commonality to you and to me and to all of us that is the default mode of the human heart. You are conformed to it because you're born with it. It's what the Bible calls the world, right? That's why he says, don't be conformed to the world, right? Worldliness is, is a powerful world, word in the New Testament. And, and worldliness is always presented in opposition to God. Worldliness is something that's the enemy of the believer and the enemy of God. The problem is the church has done a horrible job describing and explaining worldliness, Um, partly because I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding about what it is, right? When you hear, if you grew up in a a conservative Christian home and and, and in conservative Christian circles, you were probably warned as a child about the dangers of worldliness, which is biblical. That's good, right? The problem is the way they define it, because generally worldliness is defined as all the bad things out there. 
So worldliness are all those parts of the culture that are unattractive and potentially dangerous, right? So depending on how conservative your upbringing was, worldliness is like movies. Like worldliness are like restaurants that serve alcohol, right? Worldliness is obviously drinking alcohol, but just being in a restaurant that serves alcohol is also incredibly damaging to your soul. Um, worldliness is, is music that, that comes from a bad place or has that beat, you know, that demonic. Um, world, you know what I'm saying? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Worldliness, it's all the bad things out there. So the solution to worldliness, according to this worldview, is you do all the right things in here and you avoid all the bad things out there and you'll avoid worldliness. Just do the right things and avoid the bad things, right? And so you end up with this kind of philosophy. I don't dance, drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't go with girls who do, right? That becomes your, your rule of law. That protects me from the influences of worldliness. This is really short-sighted. And I would say it's actually a dangerous view of worldliness. Because worldliness isn't out there. <laughs> it is. But the only reason worldliness is out there is because it's in here. We don't just walk through culture. We create culture. We're part of culture. So to identify those pieces of it that we find personally um, offensive or, or we think are, are bad and then just avoid those things ignores the fact that we, in fact, by default in our hearts, are part of the worldly culture. What do I mean by that? Let me define worldliness for you. Worldliness... When we use the word worldliness, we're talking about the systems we create to do life apart from God. Worldliness describes the systems we create to do life apart from God. It can be bad things, right? It can be bad things. There are systems that we create that, that are Obviously, manifestations of our attempt to do life apart from God. Sex trafficking, systemic injustice, racism, pornography. There are things that, that we're like, we turn to, and, and in our brokenness, we're like, man, this is going to satisfy some deep need in my soul, but it is fundamentally abusive and hurtful and violent, and, and those are bad things that are manifestations of doing life apart from God, but it's not just bad things. It's good things. Your job, your family, your relationships, even your religion can be a manifestation of worldliness. See, worldliness isn't just made out of bad things. It's made out of good things that we turn into ultimate things. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when you look at your job and you say, my job is going to define my worth. I am worthwhile because I am respected and respectable. I am secure because I save up enough money. I look to my bank account, my 401k, to, to give me the security that I really should be getting from God. I, to, to find my deep need for affection, I move from romantic encounter to romantic encounter. And if I can just be loved enough, then I must be worthwhile enough. We look to good things. Those are good things. The problem is we make them ultimate things. And by putting God weight on them, we drain them of all their goodness. This is most dangerous when it is a manifestation of religion. When we approach God and our religious behavior from a worldly perspective, we start actually approaching our good works in some ways to protect us from the presence of God. 
We start doing good things to to make sure we measure up, to feel like we're earning enough, that we're being good people, and, and pretty soon you're doing all the good things and you are miles away from an intimate encounter with the presence of God. That is a vile manifestation of worldliness. Worldliness, the systems that we create as the default mode of the human heart to do life apart from God. We look to things that we can do or create or control to do for us what only God can do or to give us what only God can give. And here's the thing, you guys. When we do that, um, we can never do enough. Right? You can never do enough. Right? You can never have enough. Right? If, if your 401k is your source of security, don't raise your hand, but I, I'm guessing there aren't very many people that would be like, oh yeah, my 401k is so secure, I don't have to add any more to it. Like, I'm that secure. No. It's like, what do you need? A little more. <laughs> how much more? I don't know, a little more. A lot? Right? How, how about your satisfaction with your car? I mean, if you bought it more than two weeks ago, right? You're probably like, yeah, I like the heated seats, but I wish I would have gotten the ones that cool my butt too. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, what's the solution? The solution. How much, how much more do you, do you need? Like, like, you know, I have good friendships and, and they say good things to me. How much, are you satisfied with how much they say good things to you? Or do you, no, I want, I want a little more. You know, pile it on. Tell me how wonderful I am. You know, I haven't heard it in like three minutes. Come on, right? A little more, a little more. All right, so what I'm, what I'm getting at is this, you guys. Um, and, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a little bit. So here's some, some stuff for you to, you actually have a book, and I'll explain why. So I'm just going to go to the bottom here and, and, and jot this down. Because here's, here's what's happening. Here's the default mode of the human heart. It starts with what I have. And we're always evaluating what we have. Do I have enough? Is it good enough what I have? And as we're evaluating what we have, whether it is enough money or enough comfort or or enough fame or enough security or, or enough affirmation, we always come to the conclusion that what I need is... Um, A little more. Just a little more. And, and our th- thought is this, that, that if I take what I have and I add a little more, then I'll have what I need. If I could just have a little more, right? If I could just get to that next promotion, then I'll be cool, right? Just that next, pro- if I could just get to the next pay raise, then I, if I could just get to the, past my starter house to the next one, if I could just get past the jalopy to the, to the one that, you know, if I could just get, if I can just get there, right? But what ends up happening is when you get here, what happens? It becomes what you have, which means you always need just a little more, right? It is, it is this cycle where no matter how much you get, it's always what you have, 
And when you look at what you have, you always need a little more, right? And the problem is we know that this, in the end, betrays us. In fact, we learned that at a very young age, right? Remember your first Christmas when you were like, if you just give me a red riot or BB gun, I will be happy forever. No, it'll shoot your eye out. No, please, if you just give me the Red Rider BB gun, I'll never ask for anything again. Parents are like, I've heard that. I guarantee you've said that, right? And you probably believed it in the beginning because you really thought if I could just get, and then you're like, it was so awesome, I love it. Hmm. What's next? The BB gun was cool, (laughs) but I think I want a video game. The video game was cool, but I think I need a better video game. The console was cool, but I think I need a better console. The the movie was good, but I think I need a better movie. The the car was good, and it was overwhelming. And and so what ends up happening is when you get it, there's like this cathartic release of tension. What ends up happening is when you get the good thing, you're like, oh, that feels good. I like that. But it doesn't last. So what ends up happening is you subtly stop chasing what you need and you start chasing the experience of getting more because you know you'll never get what you need. Despair sets in and you start realizing it's never going to be enough. And that's why many of us, honestly, have learned to just settle in the Christian life, even though there's radical promises of incredible life and power and beauty. And we just read it and we're like, yeah, well, I've been disappointed in every other area of my life. And, and so I've just learned to kind of settle, you know, so if I get a little bit, then it'll make me happy. And, and, and so we go through this cycle. If I could just get a little bit more, that'll be a cathartic release. It'll make me feel good. And, and, and so we end up like on Sundays, if I can just get one thing to encourage me through the week, if I can just, you know, and then, and then it's all good. And we just go from thing to thing to thing to thing. Um, you guys, this is worldliness. This is worldliness. This is the default mode of the human heart. And the problem is, is we take this practice and we apply it to following Jesus. We look at Jesus through the lens of worldliness. If I could just get a little more, if I can just get a little bit more. We resent when we don't get it. We get a cathartic release when we do but we're never surely satisfied. We're definitely not experiencing abundant life. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You guys ever sing that song? You're like, no. Okay. Um, so like I was a believer in the 90s. That happened. And, um, and so as a believer in the 90s, there were times when I was leading youth groups and that was one of the songs we would sing. I've got a river of life flowing out of me, right? And there were so many times I'm up front thinking, singing, why I got a river of life? And I'm thinking, no, I don't. I don't have a river of life flowing out of me. <laughs> I'm actually really frustrated and not very happy. But I guess this is what it means to be a Christian. Just... Learn to deal with it. There's so much more. So when I moved to the Midwest, I discovered this thing called the above-ground pool. (laughs) I grew up in California where we had the ocean. It's a little bit better. Um, And some people had in-ground pools. I wasn't one of them. 
But, uh, you know, I, I, we discovered these in ground pools, and as my kids were, were growing, um, I, I had this crazy idea that if I got an above-ground pool, it would keep them occupied through the entire summer. They would be happy and never complain again. And so we got an above-ground pool, and I thought it was going to be great. And, and it was, right? We'd get the above-ground pool, and we'd jump in, and you're splashing and spraying each other. And five minutes later, you're like, now what? It's like this big, right? It's like... What do you do? Seriously, what do you do in an above-ground pool? You, like, stand there, right? I'm not one of those guys who likes to just, like, I don't know, give me a floaty, and I'll just, no, I'm, like, I want to do things. And, and so you're like, hey, let's play Marco Polo. Marco Polo, I got you. All right, that's over. It's only, like, this big, right? And, and so pretty soon I discovered this trick, you know? You guys ever do the, you know... You know what I'm talking about? Like, like it's like you just keep moving, and, and, and pretty soon, like, the whole thing starts, like, the whole thing's rocking, and, and, and the water in the middle is dipping, and it's, like, sloshing up over the sides, and, and you're just charging, and it gets even better when you have little kids behind you, right? Because the kids, the three, my three kids are back there, and we're chanting and singing, and this thing's just moving, and pretty soon you pick up your feet, and you think it's going to be like being in the rapids, and it's really more like just being in a lazy river, but you pick up your feet, and, and you're floating around in a circle, and I look back and I see my two kids laughing and I'm, I have more than two kids, right? So <laughs> then I'm like, where did, where did Isaac go? My youngest, the little one. I stand up and it was like a toilet bowl and it just sucked him in and he was spinning. And so I reach in and I grab him out and I rescue him from the current. You guys, that's what we need God to do. We're in the current of worldliness. It is the default mode of the human heart, and it will pull us down into the darkness of despair, and we won't even notice. We'll make excuses. We'll tell ourselves stories, and meanwhile, our hope shrinks. Our expectations go down, and we're just going through the motions. We need grace to break in. And pull us out. You guys, once you get used to the current of worldliness in your life, it's just how you see everything. It shapes how you see everything. And as a result, um, we all kind of are in the same current, and so we all kind of believe the same thing, and we all reflect the same values back to us, and so it only makes sense. Right? We We all know money can't make us happy, but we all still buy a lotto ticket. Right? Like they've actually done studies that have shown that when people get a dramatic influx of wealth, it has a damaging effect on their emotional and intellectual well being. Like people have to go to counseling to deal with it because, because it's damaging. And we're like, yeah, that's a problem I'd like to have. I like to learn from experience. Why? Because we all believe, we're all bought in to the same current. We all believe, I just need what? A little more. And if I can get, I don't know, five billion more, that'd be a little. Right? Oh, a lot is up to 47 million, right? A little more. So we all buy in even though we know, we know that it's not going to do what we hope it'll do. This is why God's invitation to more often looks so crazy to us. 
Because God's invitation to more will always call us to go the opposite direction of the current of this world. God's invitation to more is never in line with worldliness because worldliness is all about doing life without God and he will never give us his blessings without giving us himself. The invitation to more often doesn't make sense to us because it seems to take us in a direction we're not trying to go. But it is the very blessing we crave. It's what you're trying to get in your worldliness. You're trying to get what only God can give, but you're doing it in ways God doesn't give it. You're looking to things to be God for you when they're not God to do for you what only God can do. How insane is that? That we keep doing it. We keep chasing a little more when we already know it's not going to give us what we truly crave. You guys, that's why we need to have minds that are transformed. We need to be able to see reality. We need to see, like when when Jesus gives us an invitation to more, like we need to be able to see through the fog of our own self-deception. We need to be able to see through these systems of of self-focus, self-performance, self-glory, self-obsession, to be able to see what's being presented to us is in fact a holiday at the sea. We need minds that are transformed, which is why Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that brings up a legitimate question. How then do I transform myself? If I need to be transformed to be able to see in a clear way, to actually see the invitation to more for what it is, how do I transform myself? How do I renew my mind? Well, here's the irony. You can't. You can't. (laughs) Here's the thing, you guys. Worldliness is all about what I do what I do for myself, what I do for God. It's what I do to build up my pride or to hide my shame. It's what I do to expand the boundaries of my own self-glory. It's what I do to achieve greater levels of self-protection or, or self-advancement. It's all about what I do. Worldliness is all about me acting, which means in the end that it's rooted in pride and driven by shame. God's way is always rooted, rooted in humility and driven by dependence. You can't transform your own mind, but he can. can, You can't renew your, but he can. It's not about you doing it for God so you can earn something from him. It is an offer from God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God's way is always the way of humility. God's way is never about my working for him to fix myself or improve myself or change myself. God's way is about my learning not to work for him, but to rest in his work for me. And that's why the verse doesn't say, go transform yourself by fixing your mind. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It is passive. For those of you who are English teachers, like I was, um, A passive verb is a a verb in which the subject receives the action. 
be transformed. It's not something you do. It's something that is done to you. You need to receive the action. It's not an action you do. It is, it is something you must receive. And that transformation comes through this gift of the renewal of your mind. All right. I'm now going to kind of fill out this little arrow thing. Some of you have been like, man, you took long enough. Um, I'm going to fill out this little arrow thing, and, 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 and here's the thing. We're going to spend the coming weeks unpacking it. I can't unpack it all this morning. Okay, but the principles are found in verse 1, and I'm telling you, they are radically transformative. So here's the thing. The principle, how do we have a renewed mind? We embrace the principles of, of verse 1, right? Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God. See, it begins with an experience of grace. It begins with an experience of grace. I appeal to you by the mercy of God. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is when he gives us what we don't deserve, right? And so we're going to unpack that, but, but God breaks in. We're in this whirlpool of our own self-focus and self-obsession, and by grace, he reaches in and pulls us out of that current. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. His death, burial, and resurrection not only cleanse us from our guilt and our sin, but invite us into a new way of engaging and seeing life, not because we've earned it, but because he has earned it for us. We have this experience of grace where this God of love breaks into our self-centered world and meets us with radical outpouring of love and that produces within us an experience of humility and joy which is always expressed in gratitude gratitude is the combination of humility and joy when we are when when god reaches in and pulls us out it humbles us because we realize we couldn't have done it ourselves. It's humbling when, when a gracious God breaks in and says, I'm going to do this for you. Right? Think about when, when somebody has done something for you that you knew you didn't deserve. They loved you in a way that was unexpected and surprising. It humbles you. Right? You don't, at that point, you're not like, well, here, let me, let me give you five. Thanks, man. Thanks for loving me. Right? No. Like, trying to pay for it belittles it. You would never do that. What do you do? When, when you experience, when you have that genuine humbling of your spirit that produces this joy because you've been loved in a way you didn't expect to be loved, you were given an acceptance you didn't expect to give and you don't feel like you deserve, what, what do you do? You say, thank you. Thank you. Gratitude is the expression of where humility and joy, when we experience grace, it humbles our heart, it increases our joy, and expresses gratitude. So Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you. Think about the grace you've received. Let it produce in you this gratitude of heart. Because that's going to result in growth. See, what we want is the growth. We want to jump straight to the transformation. We want to jump straight to the end of the process. How do I grow? How do I fix myself? How do I solve this problem? How do I have this breakthrough? The key to growth is the dynamic interchange between grace and gratitude. All right, so this is not going to sound deep, and it's the deepest thing I've ever said. <laughs> the key to transformation in your life is allowing the grace of God to produce gratitude in your heart. There is no lasting, permanent change 
that occurs within us that doesn't come from the dynamic of a power released in this exchange. It is grace coming in which produces gratitude in our heart. Now, you don't have to follow me. We're going to unpack that. Okay, that's a, like I said, it's, a, it's simple to draw, but it's a very complex idea, and we're going to spend time unpacking it. But let me just say this, you guys. God doesn't want us performing for him. He's not interested in, in our, like, like he gives us Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He takes our place in judgment and rises again. He doesn't want us then, like, trying to, like, okay, let me clean up my, my life so that somehow I can impress you. He doesn't want us performing for him. He wants us resting in him. Every parent knows this. You love your children, and you pour out your life for your children. Do you want them performing for you? Do you want them like on a stage and, and distant from you but trying to impress you? Or do you want them simply to thrive in the presence of your love? Do you want them to come alive in the presence of your affection? And in their coming alive, you find your joy in the pouring out of your love. Why would God, the good Father, be any different? God's not looking for us to pay Him back. He's looking for us to simply delight in the fact that He's delightful. To feast in the presence of his love, to delight. Love. The only appropriate response to love is love. Scripture tells us that. We love God because he first loved us. You don't love God because you try. You don't love God because of self-control. You don't love God because you fix yourself. You love God because he first loved you. Every true experience of growth in your life is the result of responding to love. That's how we're transformed. That's how we're changed. You know, this whole thing about I need to fix myself, I need to, I need to work harder, I need to earn God's favor, I need to clean up my life, man, that is slavery. It is a treadmill of self-effort. You're on that treadmill just chugging away and chugging away and chugging away, and you never seem to get there because you always just need a little bit more, and it is exhausting. God doesn't want you on the treadmill of self-effort. He wants you delighting in his presence. He wants you feasting on his love. He wants you responding. So that as he pours out his grace, you are being filled with a joy that grows from the soil of humility and is being expressed in deep and lasting gratitude. It all begins with his grace. All right, that's where we're going to start next week, okay? That's where we're going to start next week. I'm telling you, um, there's a lot of power here. For this morning, I'm going to wrap us up. Let me pray for us, and uh, I'm going to create some space. We're going to put some reflection questions up on the screen and ask you to um, do business with God and uh, let the Spirit speak to your heart. And uh, then we're going to share communion, but that'll be introduced in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a good father. Man, you... Our best parenting moment is so flawed compared to who you are in relationship to us. No matter how broken our parents were, no matter how dysfunctional our families were, Spirit, I pray that you will awaken within us a desire to draw near to our Abba, to our Father, to be loved. 
Spirit, I pray that you will allow us to lower our defenses because we've been hurt, that you will help us to increase our expectations even though we're afraid, desperately afraid of the disappointment that can occur when we hope for too much and get, for too, get too little. Allow us, Lord, to take the step of faith and to trust that you are who you say you are, that you love us the way you say you love us. That our hearts might be open to the pouring out of the infinite love that you express to us in the person of Christ. And that experiencing that love, we might be set free. Spirit, you're the one that has to do this work in us. We need you to pluck us out of the current of our self-obsession, self-performance, of our pride and of our shame. We need you to do it. And we declare our dependence and we do it gladly and boldly because we know you love us and that you are for us. And I pray for my friends this morning that they would find within them a heart awakening to the delight of your love. That they might start, even now, to understand the beauty of this invitation that we might become living sacrifices because we're not performing for you, we're resting in you. Our living sacrifice is just complete dependence on you. We're stepping away from building our own kingdoms and fighting our own battles and defining our own worth and resting in who you are and what you've done. Spirit, do this in us. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.